Hi there. Thanks for downloading the show. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is uh, Better Than Yesterday. And uh, before we get into the show, you are probably aware that podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So sometimes I need to play ads. So depending on where you are in the world and how you listen, you're either going to hear an ad or you're going to hear Simon Fennec say something cool. Either way, it's helping me pay Andy and Rachel, who make this show with me, Andy, my audio producer, and Rachel, my, my EP. So thanks for listening. If you hear an ad, thank you. But let's get into the chat. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's an old saying with ice, you're a rooster one day and you're a feather duster the next. I believe that I've got some great inner strength. Never in a million years would I have thought would I have been hooked to a drug just from trying it the very first time. I would never touch heroin in a million years because I've always told how powerful it was. You don't hear that about ice. I'm sure there has been a lot of recreational users with ice that just cannot stop. And anyone that has a job that uses ice, this is why they become addicted. They'll smoke it on on a Friday to have a good weekend. They'll still be awake on the Saturday. On the Sunday, they'll be coming down and think, oh, I'll need a little bit just to go to work on Monday. And before they know it, they're using it every day. That's how dangerous ice is. That is former champion kickboxer, former ice addict, and now author and rehabilitation mentor, Simon Fennec. And this is episode 366 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm still in hospital and I'm grateful you're here. Uh, if you've never listened to this show before, welcome. I'm glad to have you as a part of the show. Uh, this is a podcast that's been running since 2013 and each show is guaranteed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something that you hear on this show will make you go, you know what? 
I'm going, and you just kind of do something a little differently and you go to bed tonight and you go, you know what, today was good. In fact, today was better than yesterday. That's it. I'm here twice a week. Mondays I speak with a guest. Fridays I speak with you. And um, I am uh, me. I'm, I'm Osher. I'm uh, 46. I've got a right hip that's now Thursday, Friday, four days old. Um, so <laughs> I've had my uh, right hip replaced last week and I'm, I'm still in hospital recovering. Um, and what else do I do? I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a bicycle rider. I'm a cold brew smuggler. And um, I'm here twice a week and I'm grateful you can be here. If you haven't listened to Friday's show, it's actually pretty funny. I did it about three hours after I came out of surgery and I'm really high. <laughs> um, but it's kind of interesting, you know. Thanks very much to everybody that did email me and wish me well. Send us your email at gmail.com is where you can find me. It's also been really nice to see uh, people popping in on Twitch and saying hi on Twitch. I've been hanging out on Twitch a bit, um, sitting here in hospital. Everything went really well. The surgery went really well. I had a total hip replacement on the right-hand side. I've, I need both done, uh, but I got the right one done first because it's, it's a more painful one. The doctors have been incredible. My doctor's really, really cool. The nurses have been fantastic. The physios have been great. I've been on some, it's interesting, you know, to do with the conversation we're talking, me and Simon talk about today. I've been on some really heavy sedation, synthetic opioids and things for the pain. And I was speaking with my mentor about it. You know, as a sober person, I can't just go and take these drugs. I actually don't like the feeling of them. It feels like I've got a gravity blanket at home, like it's a weighted blanket. So it, it feels like you're walking around with like two or three gravity blankets on you the whole time. Everything's in slow motion. It's very difficult to operate. I feel a bit nauseous and dizzy. I'm not on the super drugs today, but like I can't read. It's that intense. I can close my eyes and listen to a podcast, but that's about it. But I can't read. I can't watch TV. I can't talk to people. I'm just out of it. So... Anyway, it's interesting. Um, yeah, everything went really well. Um, they're taking me for walks around the ward. I'm on crutch, graduated to crutches. Everything's moving again because the painkillers tend to stop everything moving. So everything's moving again, which is very, very, very nice. Great relief. And um, uh, what else? I don't know. I'm like a giant water balloon because my blood pressure was quite low coming out of surgery. So they've filled me full of like litres and litres and litres of um, fluid. <laughs> so I'm like a, like a big puffy water balloon. And I've just started to, last night, start to pee it all out. But it's kind of interesting. I look at myself in the mirror and I'm just like, wow, that looks weird because I'm an extra, got an extra five kilos of, of fluid in me. <laughs> but that's good. You need it, I guess. Yeah. Look, I'm really uh, grateful for everybody that reached out about the Friday episode. If you haven't listened to it, it's pretty funny. Because I'm fucking high, man. <laughs> and I never, ever get high. So it's interesting to hear me high. Anyway, before we get into the episode with Simon, a lot of talk about COVID vaccines. We are in a very interesting time in history. And what is 
really interesting about this time is that basically the entire concept of the enlightenment of an agreed upon truth proven by science is suddenly being brought into question and manipulated by people within our community and probably outside of our community, people who have an interest in destabilizing our community by sowing seeds of fear, uncertainty and doubt. And it's really important that we keep our heads screwed on and keep our chins up and our eyes open and look out for what's real and not real. So there's a lot of talk about COVID vaccines and I think it's real important that we have another listen to episode 288 with Sonia Pemberton. She is a, a documentary filmmaker, a science communicator. We have a long and brilliant chat about science, about the science behind vaccination and the thoughts about vaccination. Here's just a little taster. With the vaccine issue, you know, we literally have sample sizes of millions of people across the world. And we know they save lives. We know they don't cause harm in the vast majority. And I'm talking 20 million to one kind of ratio. Now, is there one in 20 million people who have a side effect? I'm talking about a relatively serious side effect. It's possible because we can't measure one in 20 million with any real authority. We don't have the studies that can work it out at that level. We're working out the causation of the rare but real and there are a few real side effects around vaccines but they are so rare and for the most part so small that they don't come close to the benefits that we get from vaccinating. So if you've uh, been swayed around or slapped silly by weird shit on Facebook groups check in on that just scroll back in your podcast feed 288 episode 288 with Sonia Pemberton check it out. So let me tell you about my guest today. Simon Fennick is based in Melbourne or Victoria. He was a champion kickboxer. He was a committed family man until he tried crystal meth for the first time, ice as it's known in Australia. He tried it after a traumatic work accident, which left him with severe chronic pain. Pretty soon, Simon had a thousand dollar a day habit and the things that he was doing to feed that habit led him into a dark world of gangland crime, which left him shot, stabbed, and fighting for his life. Simon's written an epic book about his journey. The book is called Breaking Good. It is an absolute must read for anyone that's been affected by ice, which is what we call uh, meth in Australia. Anyone that's been affected by ice or has had someone that they care about trapped in addiction, any kind of addiction. Simon currently works as the operations manager at fruit to work which is a certified not-for-profit social enterprise that creates chances through employment for those who've been impacted by the justice system. So a few things to know about this conversation. Uh, suicidal ideation and suicide attempts are a part of Simon's story. It's important we talk about that stuff though. So... Be aware that if you need to talk to anybody, you should call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or wherever you are in the world. You should talk to the people around you. Connect with somebody. Just get on the phone and talk to someone. Ask them how they're going if you need to. Let's do it anyway. Um, just check in on somebody. Also, I recorded this conversation while I was in Melbourne, so a little while back. I was uh, locked in. I had already been notified that I was a close contact of someone who was COVID positive. 
Uh, I was doing it quite tough. I was locked away in an apartment. I was unable to see anybody. Didn't know when I'd see my family again. Wouldn't know if I'd had another two weeks of lockdown when I got back to New South Wales. There was a lot of uncertainty going on. And I took the chance to connect with another person in recovery. And I asked Andy Ma, my audio producer, to leave all of that part of the conversation in because I guess I want you to know, I want to demonstrate and have you hear what it sounds like when two people who are essentially strangers, we're meeting for the purposes of an interview to talk about a book, we're essentially strangers, but you'll hear something in our voices as we connect and find solidarity and strength in our shared recovery journey. And on this day, I really needed to talk to Simon. I really needed to talk to him. It was pretty incredible that it worked out that way. And finally, this conversation might indeed confront you because there's a few things that we talk about that might push up against some things that you may feel in core belief around crime and punishment. We do have an idea in our society that if you do something bad, you get locked up, you get put away, you go to prison. If you've done three, five, ten years for something, do we as a community allow you to live the rest of your life free? You've done this thing that we as a community have decided that three years, that's the price you pay for doing this thing that you did. Do we let you live the rest of your life as, no, you did the thing, you're fine now. No, we don't. We make that hang over someone for the rest of their lives. Do we as a community allow people to be free of their past once they've been in prison? Is the way that we treat those who've broken the law the most effective way of doing things? It's a big question, I know. Is the community at large doing the best it can for all of us by investing in this system that tends to feed itself? The big conversations. Like, I get that we as a community, we tend to want to see violent people locked up for a period of time that is in proportion to their offence. But, you know, what does it make us as a society to sentence someone to life without parole like we can do in New South Wales? What does that make us? The big questions, the tough questions, but I think it's important to, you know, that's why I like podcasts because you can sit alone in a car or on your workout bike or whatever it is, doing the laundry, whatever, and listen and consider these things without having to talk to anyone. No one has to know how you're thinking about it, how you're feeling about it. But it's really important to listen, particularly when you hear how much of a, a downward spiral loop it is that we are giving to people who have slipped and made some bad decisions and how almost inescapable the tractor beam of negative choices can be for some people. No, no, no. I don't have the answers, but I think I don't know if what we're doing is the best thing to do at the moment. It's a great conversation. It's freaking inspiring hearing how Simon's managed to redeem and get his life back. And someone who has clearly made some mistakes and made some poor choices has 100% turned his life around. And it's incredible to listen to. It's incredible to listen to. It's a really deep chat. Uh, like I said, it's a deep, it's a heavy one, this one. 
Um, but I'm so grateful that I got to have this chat with Simon. His book is called Breaking Good. It's freaking good. If you want to support the people that Simon's working with, if you live in Victoria, look up Fruit to Work. That's the number two, fruittowork.com.au. It's uplifting, man. This is a great chat. Enjoy this conversation with Simon Fennick. You good today, Simon? Yeah. Yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm good. Where am I? Uh, where I'm in Melbourne. I'm in, I'm in, I'm looking at a stadium. I'm in a Docklands and there's a okay. stadium like there. This was probably Shitsville 20 years ago, but it's just like. Yeah, it's, it's definitely skyrocketed in, in, in the last 20 years. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Where in the world are you, mate? I'm in Sunbury. So I'm about, probably about half an hour from there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, towards Melbourne's west, but it's, you know, it's nice and green and it's hilly and. Prior to that, I was from Werribee, which is Shitsville, you know, um, Mel- Mel- Melbourne's western suburbs. I quite like it out here. It's nice. Yeah, unreal. Did you grow up out there? I actually grew up out in Werribee. Well, I grew up, I grew up on a farm between Melton and Werribee. Yeah. Um, so I, I had a very innocent life, really, until my mid-20s, you know, and then once I entered the drug world, wow. Well, hang on a <laughs> sec. You just, you just like – you just took a hop, skip, and a jump over the yeah, okay. yeah, hundred percent. Like so, innocent life was. So yeah, your parents were still together. Everything was okay. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I, I had a great upbringing. I had European parents, which you know, part? Hardworking parents. Mine are from Lithuania and and the Czech Republic. And where were yours from? Uh, from Malta. Oh, I've got two Maltese mates. They're both the Falcon. Everyone's the fucking Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, both both very hardworking parents. Um, yeah. You know, a very close family. It was just my, myself and two brothers, two older brothers. So, thirteen years and sixteen years difference in age from myself. So, I really grew up an only child on the ah, farm. So, were you a, a happy accident? How did that happen? Yeah, the TV must have broke one day. <laughs> <laughs> so you were kind of alone growing up as, as a kid. Both your big brothers were kind of gone by the time you were a teenager. Very much so. And my dad had a heart attack at the age of 50, so they put him out to pasture. They, they retired him at the age of 50. Yeah. And he just made a little living off the, off the hobby farm, yeah. you know, and that was great because I got to spend a lot of quality time with my dad. My dad. Yeah wasn't a, a very educated man. He only went to school to grade three because the war was on back then, but yeah. he was very smart. He was very knowledgeable, and he put a lot of time into me, you know, so I really had a great upbringing. What, what were you making on the farm? Like, was he putting you to work? What were you learning there? Oh, no, he, he just he loves to breed animals. Maltese are, are rabbit fanatics. They breed rabbits. They eat rabbits, rabbit stew, rabbit barbecue. Uh... Um, my dad always had at least a couple of hundred rabbits. Um, but, you know, we, we had goats, we had chooks, we had turkeys, we had geese, pheasants, peacock. Yeah. We had everything. Yeah, so, so you know, we'd breed all different types of animals. Some some he'd sell as pets, some he'd sell for slaughter, you know? Ah, right there. So within the community, you know, people are like, you know, wouldn't it be rad? It'd be good to have a rabbit stew like from home. I know, we'll get Simon's dad. Exactly. Right, exactly right, right, yeah. right, 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 right. I, I totally, totally get it. Teen years is normally where things come unstuck. But what was it like for you? Was it bumpy? Was it all right? No, I, I, I my, my teen years were very smooth sailing, actually. Uh, again, being isolated on, on, on the farm, um, I, I started training. I met a couple of older guys, and I, I started training kickboxing with them. So that was great for me. So this is a like a, 
a world like a world pre MMA. I'm get like I'm 46, mate. Are you, I'm guessing you're kind of around my age. Exactly the same. I'll be 46 next week, actually. Right. So before MMA, it was there's boxing and boxing, and yep, and kung fu and karate are the the things that was in a Ralph Macchio movie, and like that was it. There yep. was there was nothing yep. else, and occasionally there was a a bit of weird South Korean taekwondo, which is like kind of the thing that I did, a you know shopping mall kind of martial arts, and then kickboxing shows up, and it's like Correct. what the fuck is this? People have got <laughs> their hands in the air. And there are these big shorts. Yeah. There's a headband. Yeah, correct. And here I am, this chubby wog kid who'd never done a sport in his life. Yeah. And actually found myself good at something. What did that feel like? That was great. Like, you know, we were, we were quite European. Like, I never knew footy. I never knew cricket. I never knew anything. I, yeah. I mean, at, at sports day, I'd disappear for the day um, at school. So to be able to start something and actually be good at was brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I can really relate to that because I certainly like growing up in Brisbane. It wasn't soccer, so my parents were like, yeah. "We don't, we don't know what this is. Why would we put our kids into it?" Like, meanwhile, like that's a really yeah. important socialising thing, and like learning how to take a hit and learning how to kind of be amongst other people. But that's got too many goalposts, and the ball doesn't bounce. No, no, we're not taking you there. <laughs> it was, yeah. was yeah. kind of weird. But you're also around these yeah. older guys, so you know that would have been pretty uh, appealing to you, I'm sure. Yeah, it was. It, it was. And, and uh, you know, I, I was the punching bag for a very long time, <laughs> let me tell you. But, you know, I, I actually think that's why they used to pick me up and take me to training. <laughs> what, did the, what did the training give you? I mean, you know, if you're, how old were you when you started that? Uh, I was uh, 17. Right. So I'm guessing, like, for the first time in your life, suddenly you're like, you're no longer the chubby kid. Exactly. You know, the, the, the weight started pouring off. And um, I, I actually found something that I started becoming good at, you know, I I found um, another man alongside my father who took an interest in me, right. you know, who was my trainer. Yeah, really important to have that kind of person in your life, I'm sure. And you get to learn a few other life lessons as, as well. And, and what does being good at it mean? Does like so someone, did he tap you on the shoulder and go, mate, you could, you could do something here? No, so, you know, we spent a, a lot of time together, my trainer and I. And as, as I turned 18, I got my license and I started to drive myself. I noticed that I didn't become the punching bag anymore and those older guys that used to drive me to training became my punching bag. Uh, so I thought, I thought, well, I might be a little bit better than average maybe. Maybe I should fight in the ring. So we, we had one fight, we had two fights, and I, I found myself to be quite good at, at, at fighting and it really escalated from there. What's it like, like <sighs> – you know, because when you're training, you're sparring, obviously, you're sparring blokes you know or blokes you kind of know. So there's always a bit of something like, what's the, what's like the first time you're sparring someone that you is a complete stranger to you? Wow. Well, the, 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 there was never really any outer sparring for me. It was really sparring the guys I knew, and yeah. then it was my first fight. Right. And that was an awakening because I was uh, 19 years old, and the guy I fought was 27 years old. Wow with a couple of fights under his belt. So here I am expecting a little bit more than a hard spa and this guy come out held for leather. <laughs> How did that one work out? Oh, look, the first couple of hits woke me up, yeah. you know. Uh, um, and I remember looking over in the corner and seeing me dad just about jumping in the ring, yelling, you know, you better smash him or he's going to wreck you. So I, you know, I, I, I took off and, uh, it was a great fight, actually. We, we we drew that fight because 
I don't think the ref was uh, or, or the judges were game to to give it to the other guy because my dad was probably more violent than than both of us. <laughs> <laughs> so at this at this point in time, I mean, it's of a kickboxing is obviously not professional, and you've you know you're out of school. So what what's bringing the money in? Are you still working with your dad? You still working with the rabbits and stuff? No, no. So I was I was from the age of fifteen. I'd left school. I was uh, working with my oldest brother Vic, who ran an electrical store like like a Harvey Norman. It was oh, yeah. selling uh, fridges and washing machines and and, and all of the all of the above. So I did that for five years until I was 20 years old, and then I bought myself a little truck and I started delivering fridges and, and washing machines. I got a little contract and I had my own business. It was great. That's a big deal, man. There's not many, you know, like now, there's certainly not no, not many 20-year-olds buying themselves a truck and starting their own delivery business. That's a big deal, man. It was a great start in life. It was hard work. It was great training whilst, whilst I worked. You know, I sometimes you take a fridge up six flights of stairs in in, in the commission flats on, on your own. Yeah. You know? So I looked at it as training. I looked at it as work and it paid well too. So it was a great basis to save for my own house. Yeah. And so that was the goal. It was, you know, the proper like immigrant parents, you got to get it, get it out of your mouth, get some grass under your feet. Yeah. 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 I met my first wife when I was 19. I was married by the age of 19. Wow. Um, still living on the farm. We had a granny flat at the back. So, you know, my wife was working, I was working, we were saving, just really trying to succeed and very level-headed, both of us. Never did any of the nightclub stuff. Yeah. Just between work and training, there, there wasn't a lot of time for anything else. So by this point, Simon, it sounds like you're, you know, you're setting yourself like if, if my kid, like she's 16 now, if in, you know, eight years from now she was, you know, working like that with that kind of goal, I'd be like, job done, you know. Mm. <laughs> We've done the yeah, good thing. Good thing so. yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, well, uh, at, the, at the age of 24, you know, I thought hey, I'm well and truly on my way, you know. Yeah. Yeah, man, abs- absolutely. But clearly something something happened, you know. It's never – but it's never one thing, is it? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a confluence no. of things that – lead you to you don't like accidentally find yourself in the middle of a crime syndicate you know <laughs> you just no. you know it's it's one thing leads to another leads to another where where did things start to seep in it, it started to waver when my dad was diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. and i just watched him deteriorate yeah. this strong pillar this you know this rock in my life i watched him deteriorate over 12 months to a feather of a man, oh. you know, he went from being 102 kilos, and I remember carrying him from his bedroom to uh, his hospital bed at 45 kilos. Oh, you know, um, and and that, and that broke me over that period of time. That was that was tough going. Yeah, and obviously you're, you know? you're trying to look for uh, something to make that pain, you know. Yeah, so so I, what I did is I put all my energy in, into training yeah. whilst he was sick. Yeah, you know I fought for a South Pacific title and I got knocked out. And he he knew about that fight and asked me never to fight again. So I always listened to what he asked me to do. So I didn't train anymore. And then whilst he was crook, I just wanted to keep making him proud. So I fought for uh, actually I, that was for a Commonwealth title that I, that I got knocked out, but I. I fought for an Australian title yeah. and, and I knocked the guy out 
and I showed him the belt and, you know, just brought so much joy to his face. Wow. And then I, I fought for a South Pacific title and that was just before he died and, again, that brought joy to his face. Amazing. Um, but after he passed away, I lost the will to train. I, I lost all the drive that I had to succeed as a family man. Um, I thought if, if life can take you away at the age of 60 when you don't drink and all you did was ever work and try and watch your family succeed, I just – I just started creeping on the edge of uh, wanting the party and, and, and having a good time, you know? Right. You got, got kids by this stage, I imagine. But by, by this time, I had my first son, yeah. Yeah, right. And I can totally imagine, like, grief affects us all in our own ways. I mean, and there's no one way to process grief. The, every, every single person's, you know, experience with grief is as individual as their relationship with the person they're grieving for, you know. So the way yeah. I experience the loss of my mom is completely different to the way you experience the loss of your dad, you know. It's just because they're completely yeah. different people and our relationship is different. But I, I can totally get, I totally understand getting a, a, an attack of the fuckets. Like, ah, fuck it. Yeah. Totally yeah, I did. I, So in doing that, I, um, I basically threw away my marriage. I kept working the whole time. I was working two jobs. I still kept the truck business going, but yeah. I started bouncing in nightclubs and strip clubs. Of course, because you're a you're a big guy. You're a you're a kickboxer. You're a you're a formidable individual. Yeah. And people will pay money, pay good money for someone like that to to secure their business. Yeah. I was actually making very good money, and I, I got to live another life that I hadn't experienced. So, yeah. you know, here here I am living this nightclub life that I I'd missed out on. In my teens and twenties, yeah, but in a position of power, you're not the one hoping for attention of everyone. You're the one who's in charge of of who gets in, yeah. who doesn't get in. You're the one that people want favors from. But at the same time, I was never about power. I I, I really just enjoyed the nightlife. I was never about the power. I just yeah. like keeping the peace and 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 having a good time. Yeah, <laughs> keeping the peace. <laughs> yeah, keeping the peace. Uh, <laughs> I know this is a podcast, but I wish people could see the face you just pulled. I used to work. In, I used to work in clubs. I worked in clubs in the in the early nineties. It was a time before CCTV. Let's just say that time. And uh, yeah. um, and I've got to say, some of the best door guys that I ever knew were the ones that never, ever, ever you never saw their hand even make a fist. They would just lean yeah. over and whisper in the bloke's ear. I don't know what the fuck they said, but you'd see these guys' knees turn to jelly. You could just about see the bloom of pee appearing in the front of his pants, and he would just find yeah. his way out. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that was always the way that you would want to resolve something as well. 100%. I think the best gig I ever had was was working in the strip club. I worked in the strip club for five years, and, and that, was a, that was a very challenging role, but there was only two guys that worked in that strip club, and you'd get – busloads of footy players, you'd get big groups of bikies. Yeah, I, I think that was probably one of, one of the best bouncing jobs that, that I had. And, you know, the guys would sort of look after themselves. Uh, I reckon the I reckon the bikies were probably more respectful than the footy players. It was it was a pretty good job actually. It's interesting though. I've been in I've been in probably one of the most I don't know, I wouldn't want to say lawless, but I'm gonna say probably most fringe biker bars in the country. It's a place called the Humpty Doo Hotel up in the Northern Territory. There's no security there because within the community, within the immediate community of the people that frequent the pub, they have this code yeah. of like just nobody fuck with it. 
If yeah. if anybody makes a mess, that means the cops are arriving, and we don't. Yeah. Then we're all fucked. So, yeah, you know. And there's stories of people bringing a motorbike in and doing burnouts between the pool tables and the bar, and you know, but they all kind of try to look after themselves, really, because there's yeah. like an, an internal discipline reaction that there's nothing that a bouncer could do that'd be more frightening than anything there someone from their own club would do. <laughs> if, uh, if, if you get to read my book, you'll there's, there's a lot of stories that that, that can relate to. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. So. At this point, I'm guessing it's kind of hard. You're coming home at you know seven a.m., eight a.m. from work, yep. and um, and then jumping in the truck and going back to work. Oh, how did you stay awake, mate? <laughs> I did. I used to do twenty hours a day. You know, I'd, I'd come home and sleep for four hours. I did that for a long time. Far out, you man. know. I, I took myself out of my own marriage, and, and it wasn't too long before I, I found love in the arms of another woman. Talk to me about talking yourself out of your own marriage because a lot of people might not understand that, you know, that it seems impossible to, to conceive for a lot of people, I guess. So, so my wife was a, re- a really good woman, you know. To this day, I cannot fault her. A good mother, a, a good wife. I was just, after I lost my dad, I, I was just lost to the wilderness. I didn't want to be tied up anymore. I... Uh, yeah, what I wanted at the age of 19 and what I wanted by the age of 28 was two totally different things. Yeah. And I know this sounds terrible, but I'll be the first to admit my mistakes. I found her boring. Yeah? Yeah. Because I was stuck in this glamorous life, which was totally wrong of me, but that's how I felt at the time. Here yeah. I am thinking my dad died at 60. All he did was work hard. Uh, worked like a dog, never drank, never smoked, never gambled. All he did was support his family and look what sort of life he had. Yeah. I, I took myself into you could die tomorrow, you know? Right. I get that. We, yeah, I understand that. That inside you're talking your way around it and going and, and trying to convince yourself that what you had wasn't as good as what it was. And obviously now, years later, you look back and go, let's maybe feel differently about it. And And even at the time, I knew that she's a great woman. She, she's she's done nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah. She she's a good woman. Even at the time, I was pulling myself apart, thinking, "Oh, my friends are more fun." Yeah, yeah. So I'm fighting with myself to the point where it was almost easier at times to just even maybe take my life <sighs> because it was an easier thing to do than to break my own number one rule, and that was to break up my family. Oh, yeah, because I've got. By this time, I've got two kids. I've yeah. got my, my, my son and my daughter. Right. Yeah? That's a tough spot to be in, man. It is. When you're in that kind of turmoil, you'll you'll do anything to kind of escape that kind of pain, you know? Yeah, that's right. So by this time, I end up selling my truck and I start working for a, um, a leading supermarket chain, driving semi-trailers. Right. Um, I quit the bouncing because that was getting too hairy. Um, a guy tried to run me over. No. Um, actually ran his uh, car straight through the pub doors. <laughs> you jumped out of the way? Yeah, I jumped out of the way. God, I believe, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, come out with a gun. It was, yeah, it was quite, quite hairy. And that's that's like, oh, I'm done. I'm gone. I'm, I'm well, out. Look, it, 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 it was starting to get too deep. Yeah, yeah, here I am growing up on a farm, and, and then this whole new world was getting too deep for me. And fair so enough, too. Yeah. I started working for this leading supermarket chain. And I was still with my wife, but there was a lot of distance created. I was still I was sleeping out the back. 
Yeah. Started driving trucks, and it wasn't too long before I found myself seeing somebody else right. whilst, whilst I was still married. Right, and then once that all falls to pieces, then that's a whole other... But, yeah, know, another world of pain. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I you know, I, I can only imagine that the leap from one thing that is a moral issue to another at first was quite large, but once you kind of take that leap, it's just their tiptoes from there, isn't it? It's a, it's a Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still dealing with the death of, of my dad, which yeah. I don't think I, I, I dealt with too well. Not, not, not well at all, actually. So that was the start. I don't know a lot about truck drivers, but I know they have to stay awake a lot. Um, yeah. At what point in your life were you aware? I mean, I'm sure growing up on the farm, you were knew of drugs. You probably knew about, well, probably weed and might have maybe some biker speed. You know, when you were working in the clubs and stuff like that, were drugs around? Yeah. So as I was bouncing, you know, I got introduced to speed, but just just dribs and drabs. You, you know, I, I experimented a little bit, but nothing of uh, of any substance. Yeah. Yeah something that you could pick up and put down and you might try it again in six months' time. Right. You know? It was neither here nor there for me. I, I could see how people could call it recreational drugs. You know? Right, right. But it's not a thing where if I don't get it, I'm not going to be able to get through my day. No. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. So even even driving trucks, I, I, I was clean driving trucks, no problem. Right. But then I, I, I was driving trucks. I, I was remarried. I was in this beautiful 50-square home. You know, I was driving a Mercedes-Benz. I was riding a Harley-Davidson, making good money. And whilst I was at work one day, I was struck in the back with a forklift and my two lower discs were damaged. Oof. I basically, I, was, I, was, I went from being fit as a fiddle to being in a wheelchair. Oh, shit. And I've never been in pain like that before. In actual fact, I was in pain 24 hours a day. I couldn't even wipe my ass properly. Uh, the doctors gave me all these different medications, yeah. painkillers, muscle relaxants, sleeping tablets, nerve relaxants, antidepressants. I even needed Viagra because yeah. and nothing worked. Yeah. Nothing. I, I thought for a very long time that maybe that was karma for me leaving my wife. I, I really did. So that was playing on my mind as well. And that pain went on for 12 months. Uh, and I, and I, I found no comfort anywhere. I, I, I went to spinal management therapy where you saw um, a doctor, a physio, um, a chiropractor. You swam in the hydro pool. I did that for 12 months. Nothing worked. Oh. I did acupuncture. Nothing worked. I was in constant pain. Oh, man. One day out of the blue. So my friends started coming around. My kickboxing friends would come around and didn't want to see them because they're all fit, doing things, still fighting. And... They were the last people I wanted to see. The, the guys that I was riding bikes with would come around and I didn't want to see them because I couldn't even ride bikes. So I'd shut myself out to the world. I'd watch my new wife go to work and I'd be stuck in the bedroom downstairs, couldn't even go to work myself. Depression started sinking in. And then one day a mate of mine come around or an acquaintance of mine come around and said, geez, son, you look like shit. I'd lost a lot of weight. I'd move very slowly. I could stand up for a little bit. I could sit down for a little bit. Couldn't get out of the couch, off the couch very easily. I said, yeah, I'm in a lot of pain. And he goes, why don't you try some chuff? You know, have some marijuana. They reckon this stuff takes away pain. And I, and I was desperate because I, I had had enough of the pain. Mm. If anyone has had chronic pain before, it, it just never leaves you. It's in your sleep. It's when you're awake. So I said, yeah, let, let's try the dope. So I had a couple of drags of this joint, and it actually made it worse. After I had a couple of drags of the joint, 
uh, that stone sensation was terrible. All I could do was concentrate on the pain. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, so that pain was just worse and worse. I said, no, that, that's no good. I don't want no more. So he goes, fair enough. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, he pops around again. He goes, I've got something else for you to try. He goes, remember the speed days when you tried speed, blah, blah, blah. He goes, I've got this stuff. It's just like speed, just a little bit stronger, you know. And I said, what is it? He goes, it's ice. I said, well, how do you take it? He goes, do you smoke it? And I said, show me. And I watched him just get a bit of shard, put it in this glass bowl, put a lighter to it. I watched it go up in smoke and he blows the smoke in my face and it didn't even smell terribly, you know. And I said, oh, yes. I said, give me a go. And I tried it the first time and I didn't do it very well. But he helped me the, the second time and, and wow, from that very first puff of ice, I, I was hooked. What hooked you? What hooked me? That very first puff of ice, every hair on my body stood up. Three months' worth of endorphins is released into your brain. I was no longer suicidal. I was no longer depressed. I was no longer tired. I was no longer in pain. I wasn't instantly cured, but I could do a hell of a lot more. I could stand up for longer. I could walk for longer. It was like a miracle. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if you. I've got. I've got tears in my eyes as you're as you're telling me this, mate. Because um, I don't know if you know. I'm sober like ten and a bit years now. Yeah. But yeah. The way you're describing that relief from the pain, I think that's what a lot of people just don't understand. I think a lot of people just don't understand. Like we all know how fucking bad this stuff is, but anything is better than the pain going on in your head. Fucking anything. And, and, and 24-7 in your sleep, you know, not being able to wipe your ass. Yeah, man. You know, and, and feeling like nobody, like nothing. They tried to give me some work at home and it was, it was just useless work to do, yeah. you know, because it happened at work. They tried to make me feel like I still belonged, but it just made me feel useless. So all of a sudden, this ice made me feel incredible. Here I am feeling incredible, feeling confident. But then comes all the bullshit with the ice. Then comes all, all the ice world, all the people, all the bad people that come with ice, all the problems that come with ice, a whole new world I had not prepared for a whole new world I was not ready for and, and, and a huge downward spiral that I could never had have imagined. I was instantly hooked, instantly yeah. hooked yeah. with that one puff. I've, I've never heard it. I've never heard it described like that, mate, but there's something yeah. about the way that you talk about it that I could just, I 100% get. I totally, I, 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 I Management of pain was how I it was my final spiral. It was the doctor just like have fucking gave me a hundred Vicodins. I'm like these go great mm. with beer, <laughs> and that was fucking mm. it. Mm. And that's how it all you know kind of came unraveling in the last couple of weeks. I totally get. I you know I understand our story is very different, but I understand you know that there's a parallel there with just want to get the fuck out of it. Well, here I am thinking I'm, I've got a miracle cure for myself. Oh my god. Yeah. 
So I got all the doctor's medications, 12 different medications, and I threw them in the bin. I said, I'm going to self-medicate every day. Yeah. I'm going to get myself a little bit of ice, and I'll limit myself to a little bit of ice every day. And I'm not taking the doctor's medications. I'm not going to no spinal therapy no more. I'm not going to no hydrotherapy. This is a waste of time. Mm. Nothing made me feel like I just fell. Mm. All right. So the ball started rolling. Yeah. And it's, and the habit started at $100 a day, and it went to $200 a day, and it went to $500 a day, and it went to $1,000 a day. Holy shit. And sometimes more. I believe it was uh, Guns N' Roses who said, I used to do a little, but the little wouldn't do it, so the little got more and more. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so we're talking over a quarter of a million dollars a year. That's not even well, that's not even rent. That's not even food. That's not even fuel. Like That requires a lot of money. Uh, for someone who's Correct. not working, that's, I guess, where you start to go, well, nothing is as important as how this feels. So therefore, yes. I'll do anything that it takes so I can feel yeah. like this. So what happened after a short period of time of using ice, I got mobile. My workplace were kind enough to let me go and say, hey, you got injured at work, but you can no longer fulfill your job description. Yeah. So we're letting you go. We're sacking you. So they sacked me. And having this newfound energy and being up for most of the day and the night, I needed to find something to do. I knew my way around cars a little bit, and I started buying a couple of cheap cars, playing around with them at home, cleaning them up and selling them off. But before I knew it, I had five or six cars at home, and the council got on my back, and I decided I was going to rent a little factory and started doing it from a little factory. I was going to make a little business out of buying cars, cleaning them up and selling them off. And I started doing that. That was successful. But then I worked out that wrecking cars, buying cars, stripping them, selling them in parts was even more feasible. I started doing that. Then I worked out that I, I needed to find a way I'm going to pay for my habit because the cars on their own weren't going to cover the habit. And in the drug trade, you either you either deal to pay for your habit or you steal. And I never made a very good thief, so I, I started dealing ice. Mm. And I started dealing it from the factory that I was renting. And I started employing guys to help me strip the cars, and they were all using ice as well. And it became a, ha a hangout. People started sleeping there. Yeah, You know, people had nowhere to go, and I'd let them stay there. And then the factory became a 24-hour operation because no one slept. We'd be working at 2 and 3 in the morning, and, and the coppers would drive past and hear noise and, and, and drive up, and what's, what's going on here? They, they thought we had a, a chop shop happening. But yeah. every time they raided me, they'd find that there were, there were no stolen cars in there. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, you're obviously starting to attract uh, attention from places that you wouldn't want to attract. And I'm guessing it got, you know, these things only go one way, don't they? We all know kind of how this story ends. I believe it just got hairier and hairier for you, didn't it? Yeah, well, it did. I, I started dealing uh, with more and more unsavory characters, deeper and darker characters. While I was in the factory, my mother died. Actually, my brother who was uh, helping me out at the time working for me, driving my tow truck, he died. Uh, three months later, uh, my mother died. So the whole time I was just fueling myself on more and more ice. Twelve months later, my daughter died. Oh, man. Again, just more and more ice. Oh, you know, my, my God, I'm so sorry. Just prior to that, my wife and kids had left. 
I, I'd met a girl who was friends with benefits, but she got pregnant. It was a nice thing. It was a bit of light in a, in a dark tunnel. Yeah, we were having a baby. Yeah, we had a little baby girl at six days old. She died um, through complications of birth. Gosh, I'm so that that, des- that destroyed me. Mate, you know? I've, I've, you're just telling me this stuff for the last minute and a half. My heart has broken three times. Jesus, man. Yeah, so not only had I lost my father, my mother, my brother, and my daughter, I then get three guys come to my factory one day who try and stand over me for money and drugs. First, they shoot me in the thigh, and then they stab me three times in the back of the neck and nearly kill me. Yeah? Oh, my God. So I was cut from one side of my neck to the other. I, was, I, I, was, I could send you some photos, but oh. really. At this point, though, when you're undergoing and, you know, to pull the kickboxing back into it, this is like a ground and pound. This is like at what point do you, as a human being, when you'll get that many hits on your ability to absorb pain, at what point do you stop feeling? At what point do you be like, I don't fucking care? Do whatever you want. Like, at what point does that happen? After my daughter died, yeah. I, I lost the will to live. So after my daughter died, I had five suicide attempts. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And now, out of, out of five suicide attempts, it's only just recently, actually writing the book, it's only recently that I realized that maybe out of the five suicide attempts, maybe two of them or three of them were a cry for help. But at least two of them, I really wanted to die. Mm. Yeah, and, and the book goes into detail uh, and how those suicide attempts took place, and and how I'm still here today. Yeah, I, I will never know. Well, look, mate, you're here today because you can have a conversation like this and share your story. That's yeah, that's 100%. why. I don't know a lot, but in recovery, I know that people like you live so they can share. People who've been through and that you. much fucking pain. They live so yeah. they can share. And you. I, I, I feel blessed to be here today. Had I had succeeded, I would have been a very sorry man today. Well, mate, just yeah? just even like we haven't even got to what you're doing now, but I get, I promise you, man, <laughs> just what you've shared with me right now, people are listening going, well, fuck, I haven't got it that bad. You know, <laughs> you know you're like, if he can do it, I can do it. Like already. Already, you've like in this conversation alone, you've you've helped me. You've helped so many people. Like, surely that moment, like we've all seen in the in the movies, when someone who's gets injured and in kind of dealing with illegal activities, like oh, we can't take him to a, doc- to a doctor. Like, but I'm guessing you ended up in hospital after you've been shot and, and nearly had your head cut off. So, so, so shot and stabbed, and and my first thought was I got to get these bastards. So after bashing one and then chasing them down the freeway realizing that the blood was pouring down the back of my neck, thinking I better get to the hospital because my interior and my car is going to get wrecked. <laughs> you know? This is the world that you, that you live in. So I drive myself to emergency, get to emergency. There's a queue at emergency. I'm waiting in the queue. I'm thinking maybe I better push my way through a little bit. And I say to the lady at emergency, look, I need to see somebody now. She goes, what's wrong? I said, I've dropped a piece of steel on my neck. She goes, show me. And I said, look, you better ask these kids to turn around because there's a lot of blood. She goes, just show me. And as soon as I take my hand off the back of my neck, the blood just squirts all over her, all over the glass, all over everywhere. 
and I hear him yelling code blue, code blue, or code red. I can't remember what it was, but straight into emergency. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that was a turning point, or did it? Did something else have to happen? Yeah, it did. Something else had to happen. So then, then, then there was the suicide attempts. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I was still lost in in that world of ice. I was still self medicating every day to get over the grief, to get over the pain, to get over the loss. You know, I had nobody by then. My wife and kids were gone. My family were dead. I only had one brother left who was a justice of the peace, and and he just lost half of his family as well. So he had his own issues. He reached his hand out many times to me, and and I didn't want his hand. So he let me go. And there was police raid after police raid, and each time the police raided, they found drugs. You know, so the day came when my number was up and I went to jail. And I deserved to go to jail, rightly so, because I was lost. I needed a way of finding myself and jail was a way of me finding myself. I can't imagine, like, with a habit like that, it's kind of really dangerous to suddenly not take that kind of dosage every day. It, you can, it can kill you if you suddenly detox that quickly. Was there a way that, like, what happens when you go in and they know you've been using at that level? Well, the first place I send you to is the custody, the Melbourne Custody Centre, which is underneath the magistrate's court in the city. Now, you're in there for approximately two weeks while you're awaiting a bail hearing or whether they work out what prison they're going to send you to. That is the most putrid jail or imprisonment you could ever imagine. You're in a cell with six other people. The toilet is in the same room that you eat. Six people use the same toilet. You know, there's no bedding. You get three cushion-type pillows to lay on. That's your mattress. No pillows to actually put underneath your head and one blanket if you're lucky. Everybody's detoxing. They're kind enough to pump you with Valium to keep everybody nice and calm. And then once they assess you, they normally either send you to the MAP, which is the Melbourne Assessment Prison, or the MRC, which is the Melbourne Remand Centre. Yeah. I was fortunate, or yeah, unfortunate enough to go to the Melbourne Remand Centre just after they'd had the riots. So they had the, the riots in Melbourne in 2015 or 16, I think it was. Yeah. Um, where they stopped smoking in all the prisons and the prisoners had wrecked the place. So the prison was under lockdown and I was locked in my prison cell for 22 hours a day. And if anything was a big awakening for me after an eight-year drug habit, realising that my family had died, uh, a back injury, and I was stuck in the midst of a jail cell, nothing was a bigger awakening than that. Man. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Far out. I, I can't imagine, like, just to be, like, on benzos, in a room with six other people on benzos, everyone's coming down, everyone's detoxing, everyone's gone cold turkey, not knowing where what's going to happen. What a desperate, desperate situation to, to, to so, be. So you're even forced to stop smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Like, oh, that's, that, that's on top of that, yeah? But when, when they send you to, to the remand centre, the benzos stop. All everything stops. You get assessed by a psychologist, and if you're lucky, they might put you on antidepressants. But that's that's as far as it goes. That's, that's a that's a rough reentry, you know. I mean, I'm not. Yeah, I'm only talking about like physically. Like I I understand, and and you, as you mentioned, you know where you were. You said you deserve to be there. I'm just talking about like the level of you describing the level you're using to go from that to suddenly not using. Not to mention never being locked up in, in my life yeah. and then you're locked in this tiny cell yeah. on your own and then to deal with all this mental mm. anguish and anxiety. Like I, I've never suffered anxiety in my life. I thought I was having a heart attack. That's the worst. Um, I couldn't yeah. breathe. Yeah. yeah. It was terrible. At what point, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, a prison system and why is it there and – is it there to keep people off the streets? Is it there to, you know, train people how to be better criminals? Is it there to help people become better members of society? I have my own feelings about the Australian prison system, but I would love to know what your thoughts are, you know, when it comes to what actually happens to someone who has come from a background that has ended them up in that situation. What, what actually happens in there, like, as far as those, those outcomes that they are probably hoping will happen? Look, it's very hard to get into programs and courses in jail. So I had a 12-month sentence. I got sentenced five months. I was on remand for five months, which left me seven months to complete my sentence. If you want to get into any programs and courses, a lot of these courses have a seventh-month waiting list to get into any programs and courses because – I was on remand for five months. I wasn't even eligible to get into half of these programs and courses yeah. to, to better myself and to rehabilitate myself. So there's not a lot of not a lot available for guys who actually want to better themselves in prison. You know, I was a pain in the ass to the guards because I would go and I would constantly knock at the desk and say, "Look, are there any cancellations in in this course today?" Did someone not turn up? Did someone get released? Is there any chance you can make a phone call and see if you can get me in, even if it's just for a couple of hours? Yeah, because I knew that my way wasn't working anymore. I'd lost my way. Yeah, I went from being, I considered myself to be a smart guy with a family who had made it. You know, I'd paid off my house by the time I was 27. Yeah, I, I, I knew what it was like to achieve. I knew what it was like to be a successful man. My way was definitely not working anymore. I was lost to the wilderness. I completely lost my way and I needed to adapt some new tools to get through the rest of my life and I needed to adapt them fast. So I needed help. So I needed to do that while I was in there 
for the day I was released from prison, I can start putting those tools into action. Tell me about the day that you came to realize that, when you realized that your ideas and the way you were doing things, it's, it, that's, I need something else. What was that day like? I, I think that was that was about three months into my sentence under 22-hour lockdown. Once my brain started regenerating these chemicals naturally that had totally disappeared, that were totally gone, once I started getting these feelings back, you know, I started feeling, I started feeling my body, I started feeling my back again, but I started feeling my body again. I started getting feelings again. I started feeling really bad for what, what I had put my brother through. I started feeling bad for what I had put my kids through. You know how many times I was supposed to go pick up my kids and I had put drugs first? I was hours late because I was waiting for drugs to come or someone to drop money off or someone to pick up drugs because that's the world that you, you get captured in. You know, you become a shadow of the person that you are. So I started seeing all that. I never saw that at the time. And today that's a really hard pill to swallow. If, if actually if anything, and if anything I regret, is probably putting the drugs before my kids. That's That's the biggest pill. I find hard to swallow. Yeah, but any addict, any addict will do that, you know. And I I remember getting told early on in recovery, you know, remember how much work went into getting loaded? Do you remember how much confoundery and fandanglery and hustle and hassle and coordinating and time scheduling that you used to do so you could get loaded? You put half that much effort into getting sober, you'll be fine. (laughs) They were right. <laughs> and that's exactly right. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Yeah. Not only did I put half as much effort, I put it all in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I put everything into getting my life back on track. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I guess you had that thing, though, as well. Like instantly, all of the, the circle of influence, all the people that you were in touch with, all, all got taken away from you. So you had that kind of, you know, I'm not going to say it was an advantage, but you had that. At least you didn't have to say, oh, we can't hang out anymore. You didn't have to. Yes and no. Only whilst I was in jail. Yeah. You know, as, as soon as you come out, well, coming out of the jail is another story, but but as soon as I come out, I was released in the same suburb that I was dealing and you're thrown straight to the wolves Yeah. with no employment, no nothing, in the same suburb with the same connections. It's very easy to fall back into that life. You're kidding me. Like there's no support around that? There's no how are we going to help this guy out? No, so I did the, the courses and programs in jail. I, I think I, I completed about twenty in that in that period of time. Huge. Some were two hours, some were two weeks. Yeah, but I I completed about twenty. Uh, my day come that I that I was released from prison. I knew where, where what I wanted to do and where I was going to go. I never had nowhere to live, so jail had released me to a boarding house. The boarding house that I was released to was drug infested. My brother had picked me up from jail, took me to this boarding house. The, the, when I knocked on the door, the lady opened the door. She was clearly off her face on heroin, you know, slurring her words. One eye was looking one way, another eye was looking another way. You know, she's pointing me down the hallway to the room that I was supposed to be renting, undoes these three padlocks on the door, and she's, you know, mumbling that, that I have to lock the door every time I go to the toilet because the guy in the in the room next door pisses on the wall and it goes onto your carpet. 
you know. So my room smells like piss. And I was thinking, that's, that's just great. Here I am trying to start my new life and my room smells like piss and I'm in a drug den. You know, and she opens this door and sure enough, the smell of piss nearly bowls me over. And my accommodation was just a mattress and base with a big, dirty blood patch on this mattress and base. No bedding, no sheets, no nothing. I just left jail with, with a backpack and with some clothes the Salvation Army gave me. And mind you, whilst I was in jail, everything I'd owned whilst I was in jail was stolen, including my underwear. I, I, I came out with nothing. Oh, wow. And here I am in, in this room with this big, dirty blood patch on the, on the bed and syringes on the carpet. How can we as a community possibly expect people who've, who've served their sentence to start a new life if that's where we put them the moment they come out? That's fucking crazy, man. It's impossible. It's one of the biggest gaps for ex-offenders. And, of course, if, you, if you're in that situation, if you're like, okay, what's my choice? I can try and go get a job, you know, earning 15 bucks an hour or 10 bucks an hour, whatever, or I can go and do what I used to do and make a grand in an hour. Well, it's pretty simple. How Pretty easy to understand how recidivism happens. Shit. So if you want to top that off, I was released on Centrelink at $520 a fortnight. I wasn't a free man when I was released from prison. I was released on a corrections order, which meant I still had to do 380 hours community work, a drug and alcohol program, a mental health program. I had to see my caseworker, yeah. and I had to do judicial monitoring once a week. Right. And I had to try and get a job. Yeah. That dirty, stinking boarding house took $200 a week out of my Centrelink before I even got to stay there even for one night. Right. So it left me with $60 a week to survive. My brother, who's a justice of the peace, I, I took him in this house and I showed him and I said, bro, I, I, I can't stay in this house. Let me stay in your car. Because he told me that he would help me in any way that he could, but I wasn't to live with him. So he set some good boundaries from the start, which was fair enough. Yeah. yeah? And he agreed with me. So he actually put up some money and got me into a better boarding house. Yeah. Right? Again, my brother has been my saviour. Right. Yeah. He got me into a drug-free boarding house. So now I had a, a good, clean roof over my head. That was a start. Yeah. Next, I needed a job, and a job that was going to accept me for one or two days a week. Try and find a job that's going to accept you for one or two days a week, an ex-offender with a prior back injury. <laughs> oh, far out. It's like, okay, get off the merry-go-round, but here's a slightly shittier merry-go-round. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we yeah. expect you to not get on it. <laughs> No license, yeah. You know, no money, but you're supposed to start your life off again, yeah. Far out, man. Yeah. So was tough. Where was the sunshine? Where was the ray of light? What was it that that got you to to get the momentum out of that shit storm? Well, for one, because that one man, that brother of mine, didn't lose hope in me, gave me strength to keep going. Because I still had three kids that still wanted to know their dad, gave me hope, and I wanted to show them that, hey, I, I could do it, and I knew that I could do it. I, I just needed some doors to open for me, and I just needed to persevere. So I, I kept fulfilling my, my corrections order. I kept applying for jobs, and doors kept closing in my face, but I just kept trying. One day when I was at the end of my tether, I went to corrections and said, hey, I give up. I'm going to go back to dealing drugs because I'm hungry. I'm going to the United Church 
every fortnight for food parcels. This week I went there twice and they said I couldn't have a food parcel because, you know, I got one last week. I don't know what else to do. Nobody's given me a, a chance. And just by chance, the company that I work for today, Fruit to Work, which is a little social enterprise who work with people from an offending background, had put a flyer through to corrections saying, hey, if you've got somebody who's been touched by the justice system, we want to give them an opportunity. We want to give them a job. They put a flyer through. The lady from corrections picked it up out of the bin and said, here, why don't you give this a try? You know, I never even had any credit on my phone. How was I going to give it a try? So I asked her if she'd make a phone call for me, and she did. I applied for the job, got the job. That's three and a half years ago now. And today I'm the operations manager of the business. I, uh, I'm a peer mentor. I help guys and girls going through the exact same struggles that I've been through and get back on their feet and get their lives back together. So from what I made, what I understand is that you're a company that uh, delivers fresh fruit to workplaces, you know, like at the reception, Correct. you got, yep. oh, we got a, or in the lunchroom, you've got a bowl of bananas and oranges and, and, and stuff like Correct. that. Correct. That's exactly what we do. We, yeah. we deliver a fresh fruit and milk to all sorts of businesses, anywhere from infrastructure projects to offices to yeah. factories. We deliver bowls of fruit and milk. And by doing that, so for every uh, bit of fruit and milk we, we sell, that gives someone a chance at employment, just like me. But I'm guessing it's a lot more than that. As you mentioned, there's there's mentoring involved, there's there's connection, there's the thing that makes us feel fulfilled as a human being is like what I did today had meaning. That's ultimately what brings happiness to human beings. And you are, but from what I believe, what I what the sound of what you're describing is like this is a this is a company that is interested in giving people, giving them a sense of meaning about their day and and giving them a sense of hope about their day. It's it's more than just a check, isn't it? Actually, when I started working there, I was given the keys to their van. I was given a fuel card. I was given a Coles card. So straight away, I was given trust. An ex-offender has been given a keys to a van. You know, I was given a fuel card. I was given a high-vis uniform. I was given passes to offices. I was given, you know, I would walk into an office and I never felt like a junkie anymore or, or, or an ex-addict. I never felt like an ex-criminal anymore because I was wearing a high-vis uniform. I started paying tax, so I felt like a member of the community again. My confidence started growing. I started looking at people in the face again. I was able, with my first few paychecks, to fix my teeth because Melbourne police were kind enough to smash all my front teeth into the ground. So... For a very long time, I used to laugh with my hand over my mouth or look down, you know. So I was able to fix my teeth. I was able to buy my kids presents, you know. My confidence started building as a man. And, and, and I see this happen with all our staff. I see our guys and girls at Christmas time comparing their laybys, you know. Some of our guys haven't bought their kids presents for five years because they've been in jail for the last five Christmases Yeah, or spent their money on drugs. So the transition is amazing. It's like watching a child walk for the first time and then watching them start to run. You, you, you know, you see people walk, move out of commission houses and into private rentals and it's transitional employment. So they get to work with us for about six to 12 months 
well, they prepare themselves. They get we set goals, and they set themselves goals, and then we help transition them into full time employment from there. Just to re- rewind for a second, there's a podcast. People don't know this, but you're you're not a small bloke. Uh, you've got tattoos down to your wrists. I can't imagine someone like you not looking somebody in the eye. Where does that come from? Where does not looking somebody in the eye come from, Simon? Because being a drug addict, you do shit things, you feel like shit. You feel like a scumbag. You lose all your self-confidence. You go to jail, you're treated like a second-class citizen. You're treated like shit. You're spoken to like shit. You you have no confidence. Yeah. You, you come out of jail. I'll tell you something. This is only this year at Christmas time, okay? I've got a beautiful new partner. We've been seeing each other for two and a half years. She's got three daughters, two in their 20s and one daughter who's uh, 10 years old. At Christmas time, I went to her Christmas school concert. I got to sit up front with my partner and it was beautiful watching her on the stage sing. But it almost felt like I did not deserve to be there. I almost felt dirty. Uh, actually, I'm almost, that is almost going to bring me to tears. But I, I almost felt dirty to be there because I've seen a lot in my 10-year stint, you know, in the drug world. I almost felt undeserving to be there. So trying to build that confidence back up uh, is, is quite difficult. Mate, it's just it's extraordinary to hear you speak like this, man, because there probably people listening who all they know about people who use ice is what they've learned on a current affair or what they've read in, you know, on some Facebook post or like they never really think about why was that person using ice? And you have just explained one story, but I'm sure your your story isn't alone. I'm sure every time you bring a new employee in, you hear another story is like, yep, totally get that, understand that. Like it was the escape. The ice was the escape from something that was so painful. That was the only thing that could take the pain away. It's not like it was just fucking fun. You know, I'm not doing it because I love taking Centrelink money and, you know, shoving it in a shard. You know, it's like, it's an escape. But people tend not to think that. And this is, I think that's why people might, might look at you with such disdain. You know, they don't understand. It's the same with, you know, you know anything that, you know, when, when we look at someone who throws 500 bucks in a poking machine per hour, we think, oh, you fucking loser. But like, well, what, what's that person escaping from? What else is going on in their life? And that was the case for me. But I, I can tell you firsthand. Now, I can also tell you when I was dealing I dealt to all sorts of people. Mm-hmm. I dealt to coppers. I, I, I dealt to doctors. I dealt to teachers. I dealt to everybody. So don't think that the person next door might not be on ice. And and the other thing with ice is ice is as readily available as bread and milk. Yeah. So don't think that ice is hard to come by. Not by any means. Wow. And even for the people that start off recreational, it's just that dangerous. Yeah. Never in a million years would I have thought, you know, I, I believe that I have got some great inner strength. Never in a million years would I have thought would I have been hooked to a drug just from trying it the very first time. You know, I, I would never touch heroin in a million years because I've always, I was always told how powerful it was. You, you, know, you don't hear that about ice. Mm. I'm sure there has been a lot of recreational users with ice that just cannot stop. There's an old saying with ice, and they say it, you're a rooster one day and you're a feather duster the next. 
And anyone that has a job that uses ice, this is why they become addicted. They'll smoke it on, on a Friday to have a good weekend, and, and then they'll still be awake on the Saturday. On the Sunday, they'll be coming down and think, oh, I'll need a little bit just to go to work on Monday. And before they know it, they're using it every day. That's how dangerous ice is. Far out. Far out. When you bring someone in to your workplace, when you bring someone into your your company, do you, do you see commonalities even in people far younger than you, even in people who've got a different upbringing, like say, for example, a young woman in her early 20s? Do you see like a commonality with your experience when they come out of the system? Well, 100%. Everybody goes through the same struggles when they come out of jail, whether it's drug-related or not. Once you're out of those jail doors, you're, you're left to fend for yourself. Yeah, not, not that your hand should be held, but there should be a couple of things put in place and the world should be a little bit more accepting of ex-offenders. You know, why should your crime or your mistakes uh, last for life? Victoria is the only state in Australia that your criminal record lasts on your work history for your whole life. And that's, that's going to affect your employment chances. We live in a society where we go, okay, we have this justice system and we've all agreed that if this particular crime is committed and you're found guilty by a jury of your peers, two years in a small room that you can't escape from, that's it. But no, that's a punishment that lasts the rest of your fucking life. Yeah. Because you can't get a regular job like a regular person. You can't get access to certain things that everybody else that doesn't have that written next to their name gets. Correct. So it's not just those two years. It's it's until you die. It's for the rest of your life. And 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 And- I don't for one minute think that your crime should be forgotten about. But, you know, I believe employment should be based on honesty and integrity. Even yeah. at Fruit to Work, we're employing ex-offenders. We know that person has just come out of the system, but we still ask them what their crimes were, or we still do a crim check. Because we base it on honesty and integrity, we marry up what the guys or girls have told us. And if it's the same as their crim check, we know that here we've got somebody who really wants to make a good go of themselves. Yeah. If they're bullshitting us from the start, they're bullshitting themselves. We, we run it as a no-bullshit policy. Yeah, You either want a chance or you don't. It's simple as that. And to date, we've been going for three and a half years. We have been 100% successful where nobody has gone back to prison in three and a half years. That's awesome, man. Wow. Yeah? And, and, and the rate of recidivism in Victoria is 47% in the first two years, but not one person at Fruit to Work has gone back to prison. 47%? In the first two years, correct. That just takes my breath away, man. Yeah. That. So it just goes to show that, you know, what, what people need is they need a chance. Yeah. They need a job. And they need a roof over their head. Yeah. And that's a great start for guys and girls coming out of the justice system. Yet also, though, it, you cannot be underestimated the, the trust that you put in someone. Because I, I personally believe that deep down we're all at our hearts. We're slightly better than we are bad. You know, that's otherwise we would, you know, be blood in the streets and we wouldn't be where we are. And Correct. when you give, as you mentioned, it's first and foremost, it's got to be like, I actually want to get better. Because you can't force someone. If someone doesn't want help, you can't help them. That's the shittest part of all this. You can have someone in your life. Someone's probably listening going, there's someone in my life who's really struggling, who's an addict. I'm like, yes, and it's the fucking worst thing in the world to sit on the sidelines and wait for them to be ready. 
Yeah. You can't force them. And and you nailed it with that comment. Yeah, it, it's all about the want. I wanted change in my life. You know, you obviously want to change in your life. The person has to be ready for change in their life. Yeah. You can't force anybody to change or you can't force anybody to stop. They've got to want that change. It's And it's the worst. It's the worst having to wait for it. But Sad. Yeah, it is. It is because you've lost people that way. I've lost people that way. But it really, it doesn't matter. You can try as hard as you can. But unless that switch is flicked at the very bottom level in their own brain, nothing will ever stick. If, if you do it for somebody else, it never works. It's got to be for you. And, and, and I suppose that's the moral to the story. The moral to the story on, on both sides, whether you use drugs or you know someone who uses drugs or suffers from mental health, is never give up. Never give up on that person who's using yeah. or, or, or if you're using, never give up trying to stop. Just because you've tried to stop five times and it hadn't worked, don't stop for a sixth and don't no. try and stop for a seventh. No, no. The good people at WD didn't stop at WD-39. They made it all the way to WD-40. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what it was just like. They just That's what it was called. It was water displacement. And they were, well, number one doesn't work. Wow. Fuck that. We'll try number two. Wow. Doesn't work. Number three, well, they got to 40 and went, this is the one that works. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a fly learner because it would be WD-150 for me, but I'd, I'd get there in the end. Whatever it takes, man. Whatever it takes. So what yeah, do you think, like, when you've seen what works at Fruit to Work, what can other people who may be listening to this that are employers, people who are in a position where they can give someone a chance, what do they need to know about looking at someone that may, because they do have an, an order where they have to do a couple of hundred hours of community service in the first few months and years after they get out, what would you like to say to employers who otherwise would never look twice at someone who's an ex-offender? It's a proven fact that ex-offenders make better workers because they they want that second chance. They appreciate that chance. Base your employment on honesty and integrity. Ask them straight up before you do a crim check. And just because they have got a, a, a criminal record, you, you know, does that mean that they have to be tarnished for life? Have they not paid for that crime um, in the time that they have done? You know, if they're honest about their crime, isn't that a great start? Everybody's committed a crime. If you, if there was 100 people in a room and you um, asked everybody to put their hand up who's committed a crime, I bet you five people will put their hand up and six of them will be liars because I'm sure there's a lot of people that do things that get away with it. So you don't really know what people are, uh, are getting away with. It's better the devil that you know. Base it on honesty and integrity. When you're dealing with someone who that you're working with who might be, you know, faltering, how do you bring one of those young people back and, and, and get them back on track? Well, we haven't had too many problems, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's great. All our guys turn up to work on time. They all help each other out. They're all very understanding. They actually want to work. Yeah. I, I can't knock any of them because they appreciate the chance. You know, we help set them up with goals. So, you know, there might be a little bit of work at the start. You know, they, they might not have money to put petrol in their car at the start because they're really behind the eight ball to start with. Yeah. They might not have a pair of safety boots. They might not even have a resume to start with. 
they, they might not be all organized at the start, but geez, they get there very quick, that's for sure. What are the goals you set them up with? Well, firstly, I ask them, what, where do they want to be in three months? What extra training would they like? You know, a lot of them would say, um, I ask them what sort of job they want to get into, whether they want to get into warehousing, driving, you know, would they like a forklift license? Can we help them with extra licensing? Can I organize a truck license for you? Just all little things like that, even personal goals. You know, do you want to move out of the shared house? Do you want to get into your own private rental? Do you want to get your kids back in your life? Do you, do you want to mend the relationship uh, with your ex-partner so it's civil? All these little things to make their lives easier. And it only takes a little bit of time. But if it's written down and they can see it, they can work at it. If it's in their head, it just becomes another thing on the pile. What do you do like every day? Is there like a thing that you do every morning? Is there a thing you do every day to, to help maintain this mindset that you have? I, I just look at the guys and girls that work for me every day. Yeah. I've got what I call the Hall of Fame. So I've been very fortunate that I've been with Fruit to Work from the start now. Um, and, and I've got um, a wall at work of all the guys and girls that have worked with me in the past that have gone to uh, much better lives, have been very successful. And, and that's, that's enough for me to get up every morning and know what my worth is or my purpose. I love it. Not to mention that I've got a beautiful family. You know, I've got a great job. How could I ever want to go back to that stinking life again? Simon, you're an absolute legend. If people want to support you, besides getting the book, Breaking Good, what's another way that people can support what you're doing, man? They could buy fruit from Fruit to Work. That's that's it. If they're Melbourne-based. There you go. If you're working in Melbourne and you've got a break room, get some fruit in it. Give Simon a call. Everyone has milk in their coffees. So even if it's just delivering milk to your tea room. There you go. Mate, you're an absolute legend. Thank you so much for your time today, brother. I really, I, I can't thank you enough, man. I really needed to talk to you today. Thanks, Heats, bro. Thanks, Sasha. That was Simon Fennick. His book is called Breaking Good. Uh, it's out now, wherever you get your books. And if you want to support the Simon and the enterprise that he's working with, fruit2work.com.au uh, in Victoria. Um, I'm sure there's others around the country. That's a great chat. Man, I needed to talk to him that day. I'm really grateful that I got to leave that part in too. Um, thank you very much to Andy Ma, my fantastic audio producer, uh, Rachel Barrett, my EP, Mike Mills for all the music, the wonderful nurses here at the hospital, um, my physios who are super good, getting me walking again, Audrey, the cold brew smuggler, smuggling cold brew coffee in here to the hospital, Lauren, uh, Miller, my manager, who also did a cold brew smuggle run, which I'm very happy about. And you, you for listening. Thank you so much. Um, I should be home by the time we speak next on Friday. So until then, engage your core. When you're going up the stairs, good leg first. When you're going down the stairs, crutches and bad leg first. Remember that part. Until I speak to you on Friday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.